Thanks for tuning in. This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, formerly WDFH, Westchester Public Radio. Non-commercial, non-profit, and volunteer-powered. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on Support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. And now, Outcasting. America is a house divided. The answer to that house divided is to end the division. Couples should not see their marriages or their protections sputter in and out like cell phone service, depending on what state they're in that day or whether they're dealing with the federal government or the state government. This is Outcasting, public broadcasting's youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and supreme strikedowns, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good in New York, online at mfpg.org. This episode features the second half of a two-part interview with Evan Wolfson, the founder and president of Freedom to Marry, the campaign to win marriage nationwide, online at freedomtomarry.org. In part two, outcaster Travis talks with Evan about the state of marriage equality in the United States following the Supreme Court's rulings in June 2013 in the cases of United States v. Windsor, in which the court declared Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional, and Hollingsworth v. Perry, which cleared the way for marriage equality to be reinstated in California. During the 1990s, Evan Wolfson served as co-counsel in the historic Hawaii marriage case that launched the ongoing global movement for the freedom to marry. Evan is the author of the book, Why Marriage Matters, America, Equality, and Gay People's Right to Marry, published by Simon & Schuster in 2004. In 2000, the National Law Journal named Evan one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America, citing his national leadership on marriage and his appearance before the U.S. Supreme Court in Boy Scouts of America v. James Dale. Newsweek and the Daily Beast dubbed Evan the godfather of gay marriage, and Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. In 2012, Evan received the Barnard Medal of Distinction alongside President Barack Obama. On the previous edition of Outcasting, we heard part one of this interview. You can listen to it online at mfpg.org. Now, part two. There are still states that don't have the freedom to marry. What can there be done so that their state laws are in line with the federal freedoms? Right. Many of those states because of the anti-gay campaigns of the last 15 to 20 years, have cemented the denial of the freedom to marry into their state constitutions. A handful of states deny the freedom to marry at the legislative level without a constitutional ban. But regardless of whether the anti-gay discrimination is in the law or in the state constitution, all of those are subject to the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution, as you know, is the supreme law of the land. The Constitution guarantees equal protection of the laws, the constitutional provision used to strike down the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, and the Constitution also guarantees the freedom to marry. The next wave of marriage litigation, already underway, challenging some of these state discriminatory laws and some of these state discriminatory constitutional amendments are invoking those U.S. constitutional guarantees. So as the next several years unfold, cases will continue to roll out challenging these 
discriminatory state laws and constitutional amendments. But what we know from our history is that it's not enough to file a lawsuit. Remember, we had a lawsuit challenging marriage discrimination in the Supreme Court. We won California, but did not win yet the Freedom to Marry nationwide. So how do we win? We win by going out there and winning the freedom to marry in more states and continuing to grow the majority that creates the climate for the next set of justices when they're ready to take one of these marriage cases or one of some marriage cases that has not yet been filed and do the right thing in those cases. When the Supreme Court takes a marriage case, and it's up to the Supreme Court when it decides to take a case, the Supreme Court can dodge this for a while if it wants to. Part of what we're trying to do is create the momentum and the stories and the sense of moral justice in the country that will help encourage the next set of justices on the next waves of cases to take one of these cases and then do the right thing. When the court takes a case, we want to be sure that we have enough states and enough public support that they are encouraged and, and emboldened to fulfill the Constitution's command and strike down all the remaining discrimination. You know, there was a period of time in our country not that long ago when there were laws on the books and in several state constitutions restricting marriage on the basis of race. People were told they could not marry the quote-unquote wrong kind of person based on race. And all of that ended as recently as 1967 in the best-named case ever, Loving versus Virginia, when the Supreme Court struck down race restrictions on marriage. Now, when the Supreme Court handed down loving, about two-thirds of the states had ended race restrictions, and the Supreme Court finished the job for the remaining third, about 16 states. By that historical measure, we still have a ways to go. On the other hand, when the Supreme Court handed down loving and finally got rid of race restrictions on marriage, public opinion showed about 70% opposed to interracial marriage. But the Supreme Court did its job anyway. It didn't just take a poll. It didn't just take the pulse. It upheld the Constitution. And by that measure, we're doing much better because we now have about 55 to 58 percent of the American people supporting the freedom to marry. So it's a combination of that critical mass of states and critical mass of public opinion that together create the climate for the Supreme Court to finish the job and bring the country to national resolution. That's the strategy, the work we all have to do in order to create the climate to get the Supreme Court to do the right thing. And of course, we want the Supreme Court to do that, not in a matter of decades, but in a matter of years. We want to get this job done because every day couples are denied the freedom to marry is a day of real hardship and indignity and injustice. We all have the opportunity to change that, but only if we go out and do the work. Do you think that'll happen in your career? I think it absolutely will happen in my career, and it will happen in a matter of years, not decades, provided we do the work. We know what we have to do. We just have to go out and do it. And then the next generation of lawyers and advocates will be able to build on this success and tackle the next wave of discrimination and the next wave of exclusion to help build the more perfect union that we are all fighting for. If DOMA is unconstitutional, how did it get enacted in the first place? Well, part of the reason we have con a constitution and part of the reason we have courts is that sometimes the elected representatives, for that matter, sometimes the people get things wrong. 
And part of the idea of a constitution is to say there are certain rights, certain principles that are protected, even if unpopular, even if our politicians and our representatives do the wrong thing. If, if everything was just a matter of, well, whatever Congress says goes, we wouldn't need a constitution or a court. But obviously, sometimes politicians get it wrong. For that matter, sometimes the majority gets it wrong. I told you that when the Supreme Court struck down race restrictions on marriage, 70% of the public believed in the prohibition on interracial marriage. But we didn't just take a vote. The court did its job. That's what we're trying to help make happen now. Talking about the Prop 8 case, what made it more procedurally complicated than DOMA? Actually, both the cases that the Supreme Court looked at had procedural difficulties and challenges, and the Supreme Court devoted a fair amount of time in the briefing and in the arguments to addressing these these technical and procedural questions. In Prop 8, what happened was that the governor and the attorney general and the prior governor and attorney general both agreed with the lower court's ruling striking down Proposition 8. The elected officials of the state agreed that the court was right to say this amendment was unconstitutional. And they urged the Supreme Court to uphold the lower court ruling. The anti-gay forces that had pushed Proposition 8 on the ballot asked if they could appeal and bring an appeal of the trial court's ruling, and they brought it to the first, the Ninth Circuit, the appellate court, and then to the Supreme Court. But what the Supreme Court said was those anti-gay forces had no real injury. They, they had an opinion. They don't like gay people. They, they like Proposition 8. But they weren't injured. They couldn't show that they had any particular harm to them. They weren't being forced to marry a gay person. They couldn't show how gay people's freedom to marry took anything away from them. So under the rules, that doesn't qualify as a true case in controversy. They didn't have, the legal term is, standing to be in court. And so the court found that the case was not properly before it because nobody that was, had brought the appeal had a true injury, and therefore the lower court ruling was left standing. The effect of that, however, was to restore the freedom to marry in California, and it will be the next case that the Supreme Court takes that will properly present the question, we hope, of whether these kinds of discriminatory denials violates the Constitution. But we want to make sure that when that case gets to the Supreme Court, it doesn't just get there bubbling up by itself. It gets there with a critical mass of states on our side and a critical mass of public opinion sending the message to the court that America is ready, the time is now, and history will vindicate the right decision, just as this history vindicated the loving courts striking down race restrictions, even though at the time, 70% opposed. Some people argue that the best way to obtain equal rights is through the state governments, not the federal government. What do you think is the best way to work towards the freedom to marry? Well, actually, I don't think anybody really believes that in all cases. I think we all believe as Americans that we have a constitution that governs the states and that governs all of us and that protects all of us. And I don't think anybody thinks that people should have to fight state by state, year by year, battle by battle to have the freedom of religion or the freedom of speech. And the same is true for the freedom to marry. 
the Constitution guarantees the freedom to marry because it's something deeply important and personal. And if you don't like gay people, then don't marry a gay person. If you don't like the idea of gay people marrying, don't send them a wedding gift. But no one should be able to deny any fellow American bedrock, basic, legal, and constitutional protections, such as the freedom of speech or freedom of religion or the freedom to marry. And that's a principle that is best vindicated under the federal constitution in one country that belongs to all of us. Some people think it should be left to a popular vote or the legislative process and not left to the courts. What do you think? Well, part of the reason we have courts and part of the reasons we have a constitution and part of the reason we have things called rights is that we don't believe everything should be put up to a vote. If everything was put up to vote, they wouldn't be rights. They'd be votes. And we would all be voting every day on whether we like this person or that person or whether this person or that person should be able to do this or that. But there are certain things we believe as Americans are not up to a vote and are not even up to whether we like other people or whether they're popular. Everybody has certain basic rights that protect them, even when others don't agree with them. That's part of what it means to live in a constitutional republic. Um, America gave two great important principles to the world when we had a revolution and wrote a constitution and launched this republic. The first principle was that kings don't rule, the people do. And in most things, we believe the people should decide, and they should decide by majority vote, not, not a king or a dictator. But the other equally great, equally important bedrock American principle was that not everything should be put up to a vote. There are certain things that are inalienable rights, that are protected freedoms, and that's why we have a constitution and that's why we have a court. Was there any reason for Prop 8 to become something that the citizens could vote on? Proposition 8 should never have been put on the ballot. It should never have been allowed to be put up to a vote. The California Supreme Court in 2008 found that the freedom to marry is a protected constitutional right, that it belongs to all, and that the government had no good reason for denying it to loving and committed couples who are gay. To put up to a vote whether people like that group of people being able to share in the freedom to marry violated the Constitution. And that's what the lower court found, and that's ultimately what the Supreme Court will find when the proper case makes its way properly before the court. And ideally, we want to make sure to help the court get the right result, that when a case gets there, we have a critical mass of states and a critical mass of public opinion. And let me be clear what that means. That means that sitting here today, we don't just wait for the Supreme Court to hand us our rights. Those of us who care about winning the freedom to marry and reducing anti-gay discrimination and protecting bedrock American principles have to get to work now. And on our website, we've laid out the ways in which people can be engaged in making this a more perfect union. We have the opportunity to win the freedom to marry in several more states over the next few years. And Freedom to Marry indeed has set a goal for our movement and for our campaign that by the end of 2016, we want to see a majority of the American people living in a freedom to marry state. Right now, as I, as I told you earlier, we have about a third. That means we have to win more states. We have to go out and lay the groundwork through public education and organizing. We have to build campaigns like the campaigns we ran last year in Minnesota and Maine. We have to help 
build support through personal conversations, by door knocking, by contributing to the kinds of campaigns. And we have to have smart, good cases making their way up. Now, the part of our movement that's always been the strongest has been the legal arm. We will have good marriage litigation. What we have to make sure is that our public education and political organizing, our work on the ground to win more states, keeps pace with the litigation. Because when a case gets to the Supreme Court too early, either the court won't take it or they won't yet have the courage to do the right thing. We already won the great and important partial victories this year. The next time we get in front of the court, again, in a matter of years, not decades, we want to win the whole thing. The way to make sure that happens is to get on Freedom to Marry's website and find out the states where we have the points of opportunity for making progress. And then in all 50 states, we can help create the climate by building support, by talking to our neighbors, talking to our friends, talking to our church groups, talking to businesses and others in our community, all of which helps create the climate that encourages the decision makers, judges, lawyers, legislators, governors, and ultimately justices to do the right thing. This is Outcasting, public broadcasting's youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and supreme strikedowns, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good in New York, online at mfpg.org. We are listening to a discussion with Evan Wolfson, the founder and president of Freedom to Marry, the campaign to win marriage nationwide, about the state of marriage equality in the United States following the Supreme Court's rulings in June 2013 in the cases of United States versus Windsor, in which the court declared Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional, and Hollingsworth versus Perry, which cleared the way for marriage equality to be reinstated in California. Some people say that marriage is simply a contract between two people and that a same-sex couple should just go to a lawyer and get all the rights and responsibilities of marriage. Is that possible or the well, right thing No. To do? First of all, marriage, to the extent it's a contract, is a commitment between two people and the state. You get a marriage license. You don't get a license from the state to go have a private contract but you do get a license from the state that creates the marriage because marriage is more than just a personal contract. And there is no way simply by personal contract to mandate all the legal protections and responsibilities, many of which are triggered within the government. You can't by a contract decide that you get to file a joint tax return or that you get somebody else's social security. And even if you could, the fact of marriage, the fact of getting married, and in this case, the fact of being denied marriage affects personal dignity. It affects the meanings and, and commitment and the celebration and the statement you make as a couple to your friends, to your family, and to your community. And it also makes a statement if the law respects that commitment or discriminates against it. Even before these rulings, we had a patchwork of different laws determining who could be married and how couples would be treated. Now with these 1,138 federal rights, benefits, and programs in play, it seems even more confusing. So some of these are based on where a marriage is celebrated, others on where the couple is living, and what states respect who. What is the future for dealing with that? Well, right now, America is a house divided in which different states treat people differently, and in which 
federal programs have still to be made available to all, and then there will be tension when the federal protections are, are available to couples who are still being discriminated against by their states. The, the answer to that house divided is to end the division, to treat gay couples the same as different sex couples, no matter where we live in our own country. Couples should not see their marriages or their protections sputter in and out like cell phone service, depending on what state they're in that day or whether they're dealing with the federal government or the state government. The right answer is we are one country, not 50 separate kingdoms. We are one people, and we're all entitled to the same protections and responsibilities under our Constitution, which is one Constitution for all of us. So that's, of course, the right answer. The way you get there, we know from history, is through a patchwork of discrimination, respect, and uncertainty that, unfortunately, still couples have to navigate until we end this discrimination nationwide. Our goal is very clear. The strategy is very clear. And the way we're going to get there is very clear. But until we get there, there will be this patchwork. There will be this house divided. There will be this uncertainty. And that's part of what will help spark more people's understanding that there is no logic to this discrimination. It, it makes no sense to deprive families of stability, of clarity, of security. And not just those families, but businesses and banks and employers and others who are dealing with these couples. Nobody has benefited from a discriminatory patchwork. And that's why by telling stories and by going out there and making our case and by winning more states, we're going to ultimately put such pressure on this House divided that the Supreme Court will bring us to national resolution. There are still DOMA-like laws in many states. What do you think these discriminatory laws tell young people, gay or straight? There's no question that having discriminatory laws in the books not only hurt people in tangible legal and economic ways, but send an unacceptable message of stigma and inferiority to some people, some families, some kids growing up in families headed by gay parents. And it also teaches kids who are not gay and kids living in non-gay families that it's okay to look down on people who are different. And that's why, while, why all discrimination is wrong, Really, the worst kind of discrimination is discrimination practiced by the government itself. And one of the main reasons that we have to fight and end marriage discrimination is that that is discrimination being practiced directly by the government against its own people. And we know from American history and very painful and ugly chapters of our country's history how wrong that is, whether it's racial minorities or women or religious minorities, or today, gay people, it is intolerable in the United States that any government, state or national, be saying that one group of Americans is subordinate and inferior to another. Can the law be a beacon that sets the tone of how people see these issues? And what kind of effect can rulings like this have outside of marriage equality states? Yeah, there has always been a very powerful interplay between the law and the culture, between making the case in the courts of law and making the case in the court of public opinion, between advances in public understanding and changes to get the law where it needs to be. Sometimes the law leads, sometimes it's public opinion 
that leads. And part of Freedom to Marry's strategy is not to pick one or the other, but to push on all fronts, building a critical mass of states and a critical mass of public opinion tackling legal discrimination at both the state and federal levels through lobbying and litigation and the kinds of work that changes the law, and creating the climate through personal conversations, telling stories, mobilizing young people, mobilizing the, the increasingly surprising voices that are now sometimes speaking out in support of the Freedom to Marry, conservatives as well as liberals, businesses as well as labor unions. Those who formerly were opposed but have now taken a journey in support. We want all those voices out there to help people change their hearts and minds because that's what creates the climate that enables the judges and the lawmakers to do the right thing. And likewise, when the law does the right thing, when the Supreme Court changes the federal government from being the number one discriminator to now being on the side of fairness, it helps get more and more people to think anew and therefore furthers the culture. Ultimately, what any group of Americans needs to do, and again, we know this from American history, is dismantle legal discrimination. Because as long as the government is the chief discriminator, as long as the law treats people unequally, it pushes the culture in the wrong direction. It, it, it encourages prejudice and discrimination. And it also deprives people of important protections and responsibilities. So we need to change the law. But our work is not done just when we change the law, because we need to bring the, the personal lived experience of inclusion and respect and support to everyone in every part of the country, in every family. And important as it is to change legal discrimination, a true prerequisite to justice, our work will never be done because there will always be the next person, the next family, the next community whose day-to-day -day life is also harmed by prejudice or neglect or exclusion or fear. And some of that is reachable through the law, and some of that requires our own personal engagement to create a truly just society. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss that we haven't talked about? No one is the best messenger for everyone. Each one of us is the best messenger for some. That means that whether you're a student or a lawyer, whether you're living in New York or Alabama, each one of us can make a contribution that adds to the momentum, that creates the climate, that enables this shared campaign to get the job done. So people who are hopefully listening to this program won't just hopefully think it's an interesting discussion and something that involves lawyers or courts, but it's actually something that each one of us as Americans, as, as human beings under this Constitution, have the opportunity to make a difference. And young people have an incredibly important role to play here. Part of our success is being propelled by our generational momentum, that younger people across the political spectrum have grown up now in the midst of this conversation about gay people and the freedom to marry, and while we've now grown public support to about 53 to 55 to 58 percent, depending on the poll, up from 27 percent just 17 years ago, so we've doubled it in about 17 years, a very quick historical progress, younger support is now at about 81 percent. So young people are the future of this fight. And if young people listening to this program want to make a difference and be part of history, go to the website, sign up, get involved. There's plenty of work to be done, and we want this to go as quickly as we can get it to happen. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. 
Evan Wolfson is the founder and president of Freedom to Marry, the campaign to win marriage nationwide, online at freedomtomarry.org. During the 1990s, Evan Wolfson served as co-counsel in the historic Hawaii marriage case that launched the ongoing global movement for the freedom to marry. Evan is the author of the book, Why Marriage Matters, America, Equality, and Gay People's Right to Marry, published by Simon & Schuster in 2004. In 2000, the National Law Journal named Evan one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America, citing his national leadership on marriage and his appearance before the U.S. Supreme Court in Boy Scouts of America versus James Dale. Newsweek and the Daily Beast dubbed Evan the godfather of gay marriage, and Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. In 2012, Evan received the Barnard Medal of Distinction alongside President Barack Obama. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, public broadcasting's youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and supreme strikedowns, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This show has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Lester, Chris, Josh, George, Maddie, Sydney, Travis, and me, Nicole. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good in New York. To listen to this program or any other edition of Outcasting, visit us at mfpg.org. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. I'm Nicole. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again next time. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.